So our topic for today is what does the public interest mean for natural resource regulation in Alberta? Our presenter, again, is Jody Hurlmeyer. And I'm going to invite um, Jody back to the podium for questions. And our audience, uh, anyone in our audience, is, please do ask questions. Uh, when you do so, please come to the microphone at the back, state your name, keep your comments brief, and just limit yourself to one or two questions. We really do need you to be at the microphone because uh, we need, if we're recording the session, that's one of our requirements. So with that, I'll ask uh, Jody back to the podium. Good afternoon. Hi, Jody. Uh, Madam Chair, I just wanted to ask a question regarding, uh, my name is Joseph Natuk, by the way, uh, regarding the uranium component of uh, a regulation you didn't mean you mentioned hydrocarbons and uh, uh, is it which board or is there a board to to look at the uh, potential uranium uh, activities in Alberta well that's a good question Joseph I actually don't know the answer to that off the top of my head about which particular board deals with uranium would it be a federal issue perhaps the you know, Energy Control Board? Nuclear regulation, as far as the licensing and siting of nuclear facilities, does fall under the purview of the federal government. So my initial thought might be that uranium also might, but I don't know that for certain. Hello, my name is Isaac. Now, maybe I'm being skeptical here, but we had an earlier talk on um, big pharmaceuticals. And we found certain bodies, the boards basically, had too many close ties with the people involved in the pharmaceutical industry. Now, what type of um, internal regulation or oversee is there to prevent that from happening with the resource boards, or is there any? I think that that's a very good point that you raised. In my longer paper, I actually spoke to that particular issue of what's often called agency capture, that boards or regulators that regulate a particular industry often have close ties to that industry, or it just happens that that's the voice that they hear most often. And part of that notion of agency capture, I think, is what has contributed to economic versions of the public interest being so dominant in Alberta. Uh, right now, there isn't, I guess, there there aren't a lot of safeguards per se to ward off industry capture. I guess if we have something in place such as the land use framework where those plans are being developed above the board level, so to speak, or with input from a multi-stakeholder group, that that may in some ways counteract any kind of agency capture that's occurring at the board level now. It also seems to me that there is a bill to be passed at this in this session of the legislature dealing with public accountability. And part of that, I think, uh, I haven't reviewed the bill, but I believe deals with recommendations from a government task force that was looking at that particular issue as well uh, about making government appointments to these boards a lot more transparent, uh, actually including uh, some sort of set criteria for appointments to the boards. Um, so that we are choosing very carefully who we pick 
to sit and make these types of decisions and other accountability mechanisms. So I think there's two ways that agency capture might be dealt with uh, in Alberta, both through the land use framework and then through this new public accountability act that's supposed to be passed. Just a, uh, Thank you. Just another quick question. Is there something that the individual, like us, for instance, can use to reinforce the idea of public or common good? Is there something that we can do from our level? I definitely think that uh, being engaged and informed on the issues goes a long way in Alberta because it appears that we have a fair level of apathy in this province. And if there aren't informed citizens that are passionate about the interests talking to your representatives, to your MLAs, and voicing what concerns you have or what issues are important to you, uh, I don't think they got heard at, at that level. So I would say at the very basic level is just informing yourself of the issues and speaking to your MLAs who can actually do something about it um, and making it clear that these are important issues to you. Thank you. My name is Bob Byers. I was wondering about uh, not a danger and too tightly, too tightly uh, defining uh, public good, because our legal system is is rule based rather than concept based. I, I think that that's a good point, and I, I think that the point you raised about defining the public interest in too limited of a way can, of course, be limiting and uh, can cause problems. And that's why, for my recommendations, I didn't see it as a very good option to just include a general definition in the legislation. The public interest, I think, engenders so many different values and concepts that it can really only be expressed as you know, a long-term plan or perhaps a regionally based plan where you're looking at broader timescales and and larger landscapes. Klaus Jericho, Cheryl, uh, I want to congratulate you for bringing Jody to, uh, Jody to us. A wonderful subject matter. Um, I was thinking, um, how does this uh, public interest uh, concept relate to capitalism? And, um, and then uh, if capitalism sort of as as that is the system we are practicing in Alberta or in North America, uh, and then we have the regional advisory councils, how do we know that these councils are going to act in the public interest, long-term public interest, versus in the interest of capitalism? I think that's an excellent question. I will do my best to deal with, uh, with that topic. I think that 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 issue you raised is front and center why economic versions of the public interest are are fairly dominant or occur in the literature. There's many academics that have said, if we are living in a Western democracy uh, that's based on a capitalist system, where the, the goals of that capitalist system are in generally based on economic growth, wealth maximization. I mean, if our economy is not growing, we're in a recession. Uh, wealth maximization, resource efficiency. If those are, in general, the goals of a capitalist society, how else can our public interest be anything else but defined in economic terms? And certainly, I think that that, that is an overriding concern uh, or an overriding factor. Now, how it could be changed? Well, it's not going to change overnight. Certainly, the land use framework is no sort of panacea or you know silver bullet solution to this type of issue. I think the starting point, though, 
included in the land use framework is very important because if we're not planning for any kind of other outcomes other than economic, how do we expect to achieve them? So at least with the land use framework, we are looking at including now environmental or social indicators um, that will hopefully be engendered in these regional plans that can help guide decision-making that's not just economically based. Uh, it's not going to totally deal with with the issue or the, the capitalist goals that might be included in our system, but I think it's it's a good starting point. Graham Greenley. Jody, uh, do you know if, if the land use frame, framework is going to put any constraints on, on what private landowners can do with their land, such as, uh, say, farmers subdividing Class one agricultural land for housing or any other type of non-agricultural uses? I'm happy you raised that topic because uh, the land use framework is going to affect both public and private land. Of course, I can't speak to any of the specifics because I only have the policy document, but the land use framework as a policy document does speak to uh, the possibility that private land can also be regulated by these regional plans, and it contemplates that there can be, for instance, notations placed on private land to engender certain attributes. Um, there's going to be tools included in the land use framework that you can put a conservation on conservation easement on land for agricultural purposes, which is something that actually you can't do at this point, and that would actually preserve the land for agricultural purposes and stop and prevent it from being subdivided. And there's also something included in the land use framework called a tradable development unit. So I think they are looking towards um, not only a compensation regime, if, if for some instance you are a private landowner and can't do what you want to with your land because it's been protected or limited in some way by the regional plan. So there'll be compensation awarded. But I think the government's also looking to put in place some ways um, a land swap or some sort of credit scheme where you can, if you can't develop in one space, you might get land in exchange um, for compensation. I don't know any of the specifics of that because it's it's only mentioned in very general terms in the land use framework as a policy document. But definitely it will apply to private land and there there's going to be compensation or other mechanisms in there to try and offset any limitations that are placed on on private land and also public land. If you're a public landowner and already have a leasing grace in place and you you're using that land for certain purposes and you can no longer, there may be compensation schemes for you in that respect as well. My name's Henning Mundell. Um, just in the answer before, I think, to Klaus, you referred to the um, indicators, uh, economic as well as uh, social and environmental indicators relating to the land use framework. Um, in the land use framework, is there a concept and a construct for evaluating one year, three years, five years down the road to what extent these have been met? And if not, then what? Certainly, again, in the, in the land use framework policy document itself, it says we have to not only set outcomes and thresholds, but certainly we have to include mechanisms for monitoring. How do we ensure that we're actually consistent or not exceeding those thresholds? Now, what those particular monitoring mechanisms will look like will are determined within the regional plan and by those regional planning bodies. So it's, there's actually a fair amount of power within the actual region. 
And I will mention that your region in particular, the South Saskatchewan, is critically important um, for many reasons. But in terms of the land use framework, it is because it is one of the priority areas. One of the first plans is going to be developed here. And the plan that's developed here is going to in some ways serve as the template for the other plans that are developed around the province, the other six plans. So critically important what will be happening here and those types of mechanisms or evaluation procedures that that you raised to be included in the plan here, that they are good and that they are rigorous and that they occur often because uh, it will in some ways serve as that template. Uh, I'm Trevor Page and my question also deals with the land use framework. Um, And I recognize that You've just seen the policy. Um, do you know whether there is a provision for updating the land use framework? And I, I raised the question in relation to the sequestering of CO2 from the tar sands, a technology which has not yet been articulated, which has very serious effects on Alberta. Um, is being discussed at the highest level in terms of the U.S. president with the prime minister. So I presume that although we here are supposed to have our uh, plan together by 2010, I think, if you said correctly, uh, the technology is likely to come in after that. So uh, I presume that there is, there'll have to be a provision to revise it. That's number one. Secondly, The advisory councils that you mentioned, are these appointed or are they elected? Do you know? Well, I'll I'll take your second question first because the answer is shorter. The members to those regional advisory councils or the RACs are appointed by government. But in some ways, uh, like for instance, for the lower Athabasca, what they do is they put a delegate selection notice to the environmental community. We have a network and individuals apply to that. And then the government actually chooses which representative from that community or that that network, that you know the ENGO community, the environmental non-governmental organization community, who will sit on the rack. Um, so in that way, they are appointed, but generally it's within a pool of that sector or interest that's being represented. Right. Now, with respect to your first question, there. I don't know about the particular plans for renewing the land use framework as a policy document. The regional plans themselves are going to have a 10-year lifespan. They will include what's called a sunset clause in legal terms that they have to be reviewed every 10 years. But as, and I think your point on carbon capture storage is is a good example, there may be factors that occur in the interim when the plan is in place that require that plan to be opened up or to be amended. Now, I don't know what those specific triggers are going to be, but they will be included within legislation to give the government in extraordinary circumstances, I would say, the ability to open up these plans. Now, it has to be difficult to open them up because the plans have to be in place to provide some certainty to parties. Industry, other groups want certainty in the end about where they can put their money in or where they can make decisions or where they can build or what they can do with the landscape. So, it's going to be fairly rigorous, I would suggest to you, about how they can open up these plans. And uh, it's, it's not, 
they can they're reviewed every 10 years because it is acknowledged that things will change over time and they thought a 10-year period gives you a long enough time to work with the plan and provide some certainty but yet still allow it to be reviewed so that it is timely thank you Jody, my name is Gordon Campbell. Uh, thank you for a most uh, uh, articulate uh, exposition of a point of view that I want to challenge. <laughs> uh, Jody, first, can I say that uh, I, I greet your speech, charmingly given. I greet it with skepticism. Uh, skepticism is defined as the chastity of the intellect not to be surrendered to the first comer. <laughs> you, this is the first time I've had access to this kind of information, so you must forgive my naivete. However, Jody, the history of the conservative governments of this province has not been the history of honoring to the hilt democratic traditions. Membership uh, questions to the House, for example, the construction of committees, the function of, of committees, the role of the opposition, the consultation with the electorate. And so we resulted in the vote that you know that we've got down to nowhere. Disgraceful vote, lowest in Canada. Do you not think that when Mr. Klein bucketed up his papers and sent them to be for 15 years not to be scrutinized by anyone, don't deal with environmental issues of the most importance, and that it's in the public interest to see those papers. Would that not be a, an issue that your board would want to deliberate upon? No, you can't very well do that because it's so directly political. But there's not very much about the oil industry, pollution, water pollution, all those things that aren't directly political. So can you help me out and tell me that the board that you represent and our distinguished moderator sits on one of those boards, I may tell you, and she's not going to let, I know her, she's not going to let little things go by um, of a political nature that don't bear her question. How do you free yourself from the political environment in which you're faced and placed all the time when you're rendering the decisions and arriving at a point of view? Ever so subtle they are, the government works in devious ways to get its point of view across to the people. Well, I guess I'll begin my response by saying that I think a healthy dose of skepticism is always welcome and I think uh, <clears throat> required for this type of initiative. Uh, the topics that I've discussed here today do require a bit of a leap of faith and they're quite ambitious. Um, as far as the center and what we do, um, I guess you can never completely free yourself from you know, political will or political activities. I mean, we are a democracy, but uh, we at least we operate in, uh, under the theory of democracy. So, um, but the work that we do at the center, we do to the best of our ability to do it in, in accordance with our mission, which is to ensure that laws, policies, and legal process protect the, protect the environment. We are nonpartisan in that we don't really care what parties involved. We just want to deal with trying to discuss with those people in power and the, in the upper echelons of politics and try and as best we can, sometimes it's like screaming into the wind, but uh, try as best we can to improve the laws that we have, to enforce the laws that we have and to ensure that people have the broadest rights possible under those laws in, in the end to protect the environment. 
And that's the best I can give you as an answer. Balbura, and I'll start with that word where you left the environment. You know, Alberta government never put any weighting on the environment before they started developing oil sands. A um, couple of observations in your speech or your talk. One was the um, public interest Alberta, the phrase. Uh, it's highly open for uh, abuse, uh, especially to the trusting public. Um, the second one is regarding the land use framework now. Do you know if they are placing any weighting on different uses? Like, where would environment will be on those? Would environment have any weighting on that land use framework? Well, I guess the point of the land use framework is to try and elevate other concerns um, onto the same level as economic concerns. So I, although I hate the phrase, the phrase is used in the land use framework, triple bottom line. It's supposed to be looking at economic, social, and environmental factors on an equal plane. I guess I don't know with... So there shouldn't be any priority or hierarchy among those factors, in theory. Uh, I think that the land use framework, in some ways, if done right and done well, it could actually elevate environmental concerns uh, to, a, to a new level in the province because we're actually talking about gauging our development based on what the environment can handle, based on what an ecosystem capacity ha has to handle, based on what a watershed has to handle. These are not new concepts, but ones that have not been embraced by our government up until this point. And it is ambitious, and it will be difficult, and it is very complex. And, um, you know, I think that there's going to be pr probably problems and issues with the land use framework in the first few years, but we really have to look at it as a marathon rather than a sprint. Because... It, we're talking about fairly overarching changes here to the way we make decisions and trying as best we can to make decisions in the long term when our political environment is geared towards decisions in the short term. So it's very difficult to do. You know, you said it right. If the land use framework is not done properly, what good is it? So are there any uh, terms of reference? What are they going to put into that? Are the public going to be aware about that? Because it's everything you all earlier said in your talk that the ERCB and NRCB are going to use that policy highly. So I think we should be very careful. Public should be aware of the, the implications of that land use framework. And uh, I agree with you, and I share uh, the concerns that if done well, it will be very good, and if done poorly, it could be... Uh, basically, uh, the status quo remains under the guise of a planning regime. Uh, I guess the input is really once these regional advisory councils are put in place, finding out who's on them for your region, providing input to those parties, th those bodies and those individuals, because that's really your input into that regional plan. And it does. A lot of it sits in the hands of the regional plan. Um, I can tell you about, like, the accolades or the potential good things associated with the land use framework, but until I actually see the plan and what's included in them, I can't be 100% convinced that they're going to be a good thing. Uh, my name is Tom Kane, and I have our table talked a lot about uh, 
public interest and what does public really mean? Does it include children when you talk about nuclear coming into that your shopping list on public interest did not have anything to say about health? But yet if nuclear comes in and the kids in the area get leukemia, then how is that in the public interest? Are they not a part of the public? The uh, Advisory Council on Nuclear Matters by the Alberta government included no environmentalists on their committee. So my question is, do you have guidelines written into uh, that somebody representing the environment and environmental interests will be on the re regional advisory councils? Track record, I agree with Gordon, is pretty lousy about uh, who they appoint. Even in healthcare, they appointed somebody who was uh, from down the states from a business interest. Under the land use framework, it sets out the, the groups that have to be included in the RACs, and I expect and hope that under the Alberta Land Stewardship Act, it's actually going to be legally entrenched about what type of groups have to be included on the RACs, and it's supposed to include an environmental component. I'm not clear if it includes a health component. Hello, uh, Jody. My name's Dwayne Pendergast. I uh, did a little homework uh, before I came in, I thought I'd try and follow the money to see where your organization is coming from. And I found that a substantial amount of your funding comes from unnamed uh, other registered charities. And so I had a question there, what, what charities would those be? But I think you answered it. I think you said it was the Alberta Law Foundation. And so I wonder if you could tell us some more about the Alberta Law Foundation and its motives. And finally, I'm uh, wondering why groups of lawyers are offering us free advice. <laughs> well, that's a good question. So the Alberta Law Foundation, in case you're not familiar with it, is set up to actually promote and run, uh, promote and fund, rather, um, a number of legal aid type of activities across the province. So the way that the foundation gets its money is that every lawyer, uh, if any of you have ever had dealings with lawyers, they often hold money in their trust accounts for various purposes, fi financial transactions and otherwise. They don't get to keep that money. Uh, it goes, any interest that's generated from those those trust funds goes to the Alberta Law Foundation. And the Law Foundation has a mandate to fund I hate to use it, public interest activities, but uh, they fund various uh, legal aid type of activities. It's a lot about access to justice. They try and fund organizations that provide a service to the public, uh, free services in the most part, because lawyers are expensive and not everyone can hire them. So they, as a counterbalance, I guess, to you know, uh, having a lot of high-paid lawyers with a lot of money in their trust accounts that then gathers interest, they then use that interest to fund organizations such as us. Um, as far as our other funding sources go, uh, our major core funder for, for the activities I do as far as providing services to the public and uh, coming out and doing presentations is the Alberta Law Foundation. We do have a small percentage of our uh, core budget that is from donations. I don't know if those are from other registered charities or not, but they can be from individual donors or law firms or corporations. But it's a very, very small portion of our operating budget, very small, less than 5%, I believe. Um, and then the other source of funding that the center gets is that we search, we have a contract with Alberta Environment to search their databases on their behalf, and we charge people a fee to do that. It's for due diligence purposes. If you want to know if someone's ever been... Um, 
prosecuted or issued an order under environmental legislation, or if you want to know if a reclamation certificate's been issued for private land. So we are we are given this service as a way to generate our own revenue that's separate and apart from from the government. So those are our three main revenue streams, but by far almost all of our funding comes from the Alberta Law Foundation. And with most funders, and, and I will address it as well with this public interest project, because funding was also provided by the boards, funding and input aren't the same thing. Uh, our funding, we propo- provide a proposal to funders such as the Alberta Law Foundation. They approve it. They have no input further into our activities or our reports or the outcomes of the research that we do. Um, they don't provide that type of input. They get the results. And as far as lawyers offering free advice, we're trying to, you know, set a new bar, I guess. Uh, we, we have a, we have a fair a fair amount to counteract because there's lots of lawyers out there that charge a, a lot of money. So we try to charge no money to try and counterbalance that. So we we are a service to the public. I work at the center because I believe in um, providing service to the public and access to justice for all. And it it's very hard to do in the system we have, but we try and do our our little bit.